was it bad? What was it like? Working with him, working with her. You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. Today, I am so excited to welcome my guest, Jason Grah. He has made memorable appearances on The Great White Way in Do Black Patent Leather Shoes Really Reflect Up, Stardust Falsettos, and A Grand Night for Singing. He starred in the off-Broadway hits Forever Plaid and Hello Mudda, Hello Fada, Andy Just So, Snoopy, Olympus on My Mind, Inventing Mary Martin, and A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum around New York City. On screen, you may remember him from his appearances on shows like Frasier, Friends, Rude Awakening, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, Six Feet Under, Caroline in the City, China Beach, and more. His very popular cabaret shows include 49 and a Half Shades of Gras, Gras Anatomy, Coup de Gras, and The Prince and the Showboy alongside Faith Prince. Here he is, the sensation himself, Jason Gras. I'd love to start by asking you how you first became interested in theater. You know, I think I was, um, well, hi, Charles. I was, it's I, so nice to see you. Um, I think that I was four years old. I think I was four. I was three or four. And my mother was a dancer. And um, I lived in a suburb of Chicago, Elmhurst, Illinois, which is where the home of the Keebler cookies are. Perhaps you've heard of them. And um, my mom was in a community theater group, the Elgin Players, and she was in a production of Wonderful Town. And she was the lead dancer. And I went to her invited dress rehearsal and it was a lightning bolt moment. That was like, you know, it just was, I was just completely bowled over. Uh, my mother was an incredible dancer. She was a dancer in New York. Um, she grew up down the street from Dorothy Loudon. They were best friends growing up as kids in Claremont, New Hampshire. And they were in all the recitals together. My mother uh, did ballet dancing and toe tapping where you're on one point shoe and one tap shoe. It was a kind of, it was a very special talent <laughs> and a special skill. And uh, it didn't last long, but she did it. And um, she was very in demand for those two and a half years that it was huge. And Dorothy Loudon would like sing and on the recitals and, you know, clown around and stuff. So they kept in touch their, their whole lives. Anyway, so my mom was a dancer in New York and then she gave it up to get married and have a family and, and, um, so, but she kept it going in in community theater and semi-professional theater. So it was wonderful town, Charles. And she was just amazing. And I'll just never forget like the two ladies singing, why, oh, why, oh, why, oh, why did I ever leave Ohio? You know, as a three or four year old kid, that song just, that was like permanently ingrained in my head for the rest of my life. Even though your mother was in show business, did she want you to be and did people around you want you to be or? She did not want me to be in show business because uh, she knew, you know, what a rocky ride it would be. So I was an oval player and I, I 
was an oboe player all through uh, elementary school, junior high, high school. And so that was kind of my trade, my stock and trade. And so, you know, she was really hoping that I would go for something secure, teaching, sitting in an orchestra, you know, and I liked that. It just wasn't enough. You know, I, I really enjoyed the rejection of theater. I found it, I really found it intoxicating. <laughs> And were there performers that you saw either on stage or on screen who influenced you? Or oh, God, you know, well, so I, you know, I was I was born in Illinois in Elmhurst, and then I, uh, my mom got divorced, and we moved to Oklahoma. My stepdad got transferred to Oklahoma City, and then finally to Tulsa, which is what I kind of consider my hometown. I was there from fourth grade on, and so you know, it was limited what you could see in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, you know. I had very definite influences. Joel Gray was the obvious huge influence. Um, you know, anything that we saw was on the Ed Sullivan show and, um, and in film. And so Cabaret came out when I was in junior high, about your age, I think. And that just made an enormous influence on me. That was like another lightning bolt moment when I saw him play the MC. I was just bowled over. And, um, so he was incredible. You know, of course, Barbara Streisand, Funny Girl came out when I was in elementary school. So that was like a no brainer. That was like, oh, okay, she's it. And uh, that was like everything. All, all these things I remember just sitting there and, you know, it was like time stood still when I saw her in Funny Girl. It's the first time I ever, I didn't know what a Barbara Streisand was. And um, so that was influential, influential and Joel Gray and John Raitt, who I'm nothing like, but, you know, I just, I loved his voice and I knew who he was. He was Broadway. And uh, so that was a, that was a big influence. And then of course my mother did Gypsy uh, at Lyric Theater in Oklahoma City and she played Tessie Tura. And she wasn't a great actress, but it was kind of her story, like a, you know, over the hill ballet dancer who, you know, enjoyed stripping. It was kind of my mom a little bit. And uh, she was a good time gal. And um, uh, so I studied that album a lot. And my mother looked a little like Maria Karnalova um, in the picture of the, with the three strippers at the bottom right of the album, you know, when they're all doing, you got to get a gimmick and Tessie's in the middle with her wings up like that. And, uh, she looked like my mother. So it was very confusing to me. I thought it was my mom because I was young enough. She said, honey, that's not me. That's Maria Karnalova. Um, so, so I listened to that album, you know, backward and forward and, uh, and, uh, you know, Ethel Merman, of course, definitely was on my radar as well because of that. Were you performing at all at this age in terms of school or local theater or anything like that? My first uh, show, my first musical was George M, which was the Tulsa Little Theater Summer Musical. And I played boy number two. They're still talking about it. It was quite a performance, Charles. I think I had two lines. I said, George who? And I'm gonna tell my mama on you. Those were my two lines. And that, it was one of the best experiences of my life. I'll never forget it. It was a great, it's a fun show and it's a great for kids too. And when did your interest in playing an instrument completely switch to performing? That started, I was playing piano. My sister was a great uh, pianist. And so I, I, I was exposed to music a lot. My father played cello. 
My mom and dad loved opera and every Saturday afternoon when I was a you know infant, they had the Metropolitan Opera broadcast on on Saturday and everybody was singing the top of their voice. So um, I started piano in first grade. And then uh, when we moved to Tulsa, we listened to Peter and the Wolf in my music class and I really, um, you know, Prokofiev, and I really, you know, I had a weird name, Jason Graw. My parents were divorced. I'd moved from Chicago. Everything about me was peculiar. And, you know, I really just wanted to play an instrument that would just kind of fade in with everybody else. So I really, the cat really moved me. And so, and that was played by the clarinet and clarinet was just very normal instrument, you know, and there were a lot of clarinet players in the elementary school. So I was like, mom, I want to play the clarinet. And she was excited. And the band teacher, Mrs. Beard called my mom in to uh, school and said, you know, Jason's very, he, we took the, I don't know, music scholastic test, whatever the heck that is. And, uh, I came out really well in it. I, I like got a hundred percent on this test. And so it was so impressive. And the teacher talked my mom into me playing oboe. Plus, cause they had no oboe players at the Robert E. Lee elementary school. Not a great name for school these days, but you know, whatever. So, um, she talked my mom into it. And my mother, you know, was, you know, flashy and fun and thought outside the box. And she was very mame Dennis, my mom. And so she loved the idea of me not playing the instrument that everybody else was going to play, but the oboe. And, you know, that was the duck in Peter and the Wolf and very mournful, sad, you know, ending for the duck. You know, he ends up in the wolf's stomach, although not dead. He's still alive, which is very bizarre, Charles. <laughs> But um, so I'm not sure we're happy about that. But um, anyway, so that's how I started playing the oboe. You know, it was just due to lack of interest of anybody else and that I had a smooth talking band teacher. Um, and so it was great. You know, I loved the oboe. I loved it. I was good at it. And I was certainly the best one at Robert E. Lee Elementary School. And where did you study in terms of singing and acting and all of that? Or... Well, I didn't study that much in elementary or high school. I did a little, or junior high and high school, uh, as far as acting. I took some, I did some like, you know, high school musical theater workshops at the Lyric Theater in Oklahoma City. And I sang a little bit, you know, I, I just kind of had a natural voice. You know, I played parts like The Courier in 1776 and Mordred, you know, not particularly difficult roles or rangy. Um, and then I went to SMU in Dallas, Texas, where uh, I knew they had a really good theater school, but I went as an oboe major. I got accepted as an oboist and got a, a scholarship. And I just hated my teacher. I hated my teacher. I hated the way he played. I had to play second chair. I'd always been first chair oboist in the, you know, all city orchestra in the Oklahoma all state orchestra, you know, everything. I was always first chair. So I was kind of snooty. Let's just face it. There weren't that many oboe players in Oklahoma. Okay, Charles. So, um, <laughs> so, you know, I was a little snooty and I thought I was better than the first chair at SMU, but I really didn't like my teacher and you have to make those reads. You have to make all your oboe reads yourself and it takes forever. And I hated it. And so I quit and it caused kind of a scandal because they had to take my scholarship away. And I ended up being a piano major because I was a good pianist. I wasn't a great pianist, but I was good. And, um, and 
all during that time, I would study voice a little bit. I'd go to some dance classes on the side and I was trying to figure out a way at SMU to you know, merge music and theater and they wouldn't let you double major back then. And so then all of a sudden my college roommate told me about Cincinnati Conservatory where they had a musical theater major and a BFA and you could learn, you could study sight singing and dictation and theory and acting and dance, you know, and, uh, and get to perform. And, and that was all part of your schooling. And I, I was delirious with excitement and I auditioned, I got it. And so I also got accepted as a noble major there. And uh, so I transferred the next year. And the year that I transferred, my oboe teacher, Devere Moore, also transferred to Cincinnati Conservatory. Isn't that weird from SMU? That's so weird. That's like a sign. There are certain serendipitous signs. Is that a word, serendipitous? Yes. So. Yes. I thought you might know more than I would. So, um, <laughs> yes, <laughs> it was full of serendipity, Charles. And uh, yes, so I, I put down the oboe and picked up the score to pajama game. Yes. And so how did Paint Your Wagon happen for you with? Paint Your Wagon? With, uh, what are you asking about Paint Your Wagon? That's wild. Well, Paint Your Wagon, so that was not, that was like my, let's see, it wasn't my year I got my equity card at Pittsburgh Civic Light Opera, but it was the second year when I went back there as resident actor. I can't believe you're asking me about Paint Your Wagon. No one asks me about Paint Your Wagon. Did we talk about it before? Well, I, I was just curious because of Jose Ferrer and Pedro Harris. Yes. Oh, my God. Jose Ferrer. So the second year that I went back, I was a resident actor at Pittsburgh Civic Light Opera. And so I had small parts. And so that was kind of like I'd done My Fair Lady with Noel Harrison. And then Paint Your Wagon, I had like more lines than I'd ever had, you know, while in Actors' Equity. And I played Sandy Twist, who was just like one of the random, you know, minors. And um, I think he was Irish. Sounds Irish, right? Sandy Twist. Oh, Sandy Twist. Always oh, after me lucky charms. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, yeah, so Jose Ferrer had a very hard time memorizing his lines. And, um, and he had to like sing throughout the whole thing. He had to like come in and out of the action. Do you know Paint Your Wagon? Of course you do. And so better than I do, I'm sure. And so he was supposed to sing all these songs and he couldn't remember his, all the songs and his words. And Paige O'Hara played his daughter, Jenny, I think. Is it Jenny? I think it's the daughter in Shenandoah. Anne, wait, I don't know. She was his daughter, whatever. Jenny's the daughter in Shenandoah to the old guy. And then I can't remember uh, what her name was. Anyway, so she was constantly working with Jose. She was so sweet. And she'd like, they, you know, they'd like hang out till the wee hours and he couldn't remember it. So they took all his songs away and gave them to uh, Mark McGrath, who I'd gone to college with. He's Lynn Winterstellar's husband. And so Mark was in the ensemble. And so Mark sang all the songs and then Jose just all he had to do is think about his lines. And um, so on opening night, I was so excited and I think my parents flew up for it and all that stuff. And I am waiting to go on stage for like my first big scene and as an equity actor. And I walked on stage and Jose Ferrer, I literally walked on stage and he cut from right before my first line to right after my last line of the scene. And I literally walked on stage and heard him say the line after my last line. And I just turned and walked off. <laughs> 
I was so upset. Everybody said how gracious I was, but I was dying inside. <laughs> how did the uh, Civic Light Opera first start for, for you? For, well, Pittsburgh Civic Light Opera was at Heinz Hall, that beautiful Heinz Hall, which is now like their symphony. It's, it's always been their symphony hall and their, you know, it's very grandiose and beautiful red carpeting and velvet. And, you know, it's like old school opera house symphony hall. And uh, so a lot of us at Cincinnati Conservatory um, went to Pittsburgh to work. And so we all just like caravaned uh, from Cincinnati to Pittsburgh. It was about a five hour drive. And we all, a bunch of us auditioned. We all either uh, worked at a Wagon Wheel Playhouse, um, which was in Indiana or Opryland USA, which was a theme park in Nashville, which I worked at, and or Pittsburgh Civic Light Opera. So those were like our major, you know, our main um, summer stock places that we would work in the summer. So uh, that year at Pittsburgh, my first year when I, I got cast, uh, there were like seven of us from the conservatory that got cast um, to be on the ensemble. Debbie Graham, was Vicki Lewis? No, Vicki Lewis didn't get that, um, do it. Um, Kim Criswell, Scott Willis. There were a lot of us. So it was great. And then I came back to do The Resident Actor the next year. And then I worked there through the years. Great. And what were some of the roles that you did early on or the shows that you did? Uh, at Pittsburgh? Yes. Um, let's see. I did. I was very memorable as the suitcase man in Cabaret. And uh, that was my first, that was our first show, first equity show, D. Jamin Bartlett was Sally Bowles. And I just love that you know everything about musical theater. You just slay me. Oh my God. I mean, it's not, you know, I say D. Jamin Bartlett to my theater friends here who are, you know, five times your age and they just stare at me blankly. And then I go, you know, Petra in A Little Light Music. So um, she was great. And Jack Guilford reprised his role as Herr Schultz, wow. which was amazing. And Peg Murray, oh, she played you know, originally, you know, Fraulein Cost. And I think she got a Tony Award for it. Um, you know, not, it's not, that's not general knowledge. I would not have known that had I not worked with her. Um, so she was playing uh, Fraulein Schneider this time around. But Jack Guilford has always been one of my heroes. So I hung out with him all the time. I just was like such an annoying nuisance, but I loved him so much. And I just, you know, I got his autograph and I would just, he was so, he always had his dressing room door open and he loved telling stories. And I just, I never like got right in there. I was always just kind of standing in his, you know, reception area or out, right outside the door. But I just, he was such a sweet man and so brilliant. So that was fun. Uh, one of the most memorable things I did, <laughs> and not for the right way, was I was the uh, balladeer, I guess you'd call him, in Guinevere, the soloist in Guinevere in Camelot, which I did with Meg Bussert, was a fantastic Guinevere, and Noel Harrison. And I came out and sang, out the room, down the hall, through the yard, da, da, da. and he sings about what happens, you know, after Guinevere's caught. And, you know, that she's almost burnt at the stake and that Lancelot comes and saves her. And that's all up to me to relay that to the audience. And I was so nervous because that was my first solo at Pittsburgh. And it was the last show of the season. And I was so nervous. And I completely cut the part where Lancelot saves Guinevere from burning at the stake. 
I cut it and repeated and started making things up. Up the stairs, down the hall, there she ran, was a ball. Ba -ba 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 -ba. I was making crap up. And um, <laughs> I walked up, I was mortified. I was just, I had flop sweat just dripping down. I knew that I just was so off. And the director, Jack Allison, who was a delightful, hilarious, dry, acerbic man, um, was waiting for me in the wings. And he said, well, congratulations. You just killed Guinevere. <laughs> said, I'm so sorry. <laughs> but he had a good sense of humor about it. So that was good. <laughs> and so how did your move to New York City eventually happen? Well, so then I went back to Cincinnati and then I graduated. I got my BFA and our entire graduating class moved to New York. There were about, I think, seven of us by the time we graduated and we all just moved to New York. It was just a no brainer. And I went back, worked to Pittsburgh, uh, got to do some fun roles that summer, like Naughty Marietta and um, some other shows My and Paint Your Wagon that I was so famous for. And um, then came into uh, New York, drove in my car and all my belongings. And I was there like, I don't know, I was there less than a week. And I got a little night music up at Portsmouth, New Hampshire, Theater by the Sea, starring DJ Bartlett oh. as Desiree. Mm -hmm. And her daughter played Frederica. Holly, I think her name, so cute. And it was incredible. And I played Henrik. It's a little too high for me, but I did pretty well, except on like by Sunday after a five show weekend, it was a little raw. Weekend in the country was a little tough. <laughs> Later's pretty easy. Later is it sits low and then you just kind of for God's sake, you know, you could kind of float it. But weekend in the country, the testatura just sits right up there. And so that every so often I would like let out like a duck quack on that. Um, so I was there. And then uh, after that, then I came to New York and then stayed. And did auditioning come easily to you right at the beginning? Were you getting a lot of things right away or did it take time? That's a good question. I loved auditioning back then. I couldn't wait to just, you know, show off for people. And it was just like, oh my God, it was a, a stage for you for three minutes. You know, I, I loved it. My first audition that I did, well, I auditioned for the tour of West Side Story, uh, not the tour, the Broadway West Side Story revival. And they had come to Pittsburgh uh, and auditioned all the ensemble. And then some of us got called back. So we flew into New York before I'd even moved to New York. And I auditioned for West Side Story. That's and right. it was at the Minskoff Theater. I've been screened. Then I went in for Jerome Robbins to dance. And I'm an okay mover, but I'm not a brilliant dancer by any means. But I was the right type for West Side. And so I made it through two cuts of dancing in front of Jerome Robbins, and then I got cut. And I was very cheeky back then. And so I walked to the locker room to change, and I changed my shirt. And I remember I had like a, I had like a random T-shirt on, and I took it off and put my green and white stripe polo shirt, really big stripes. And I came back. <laughs> I don't know what I was trying to pull because they had my picture and resume. So it's like, well, who's this guy? And, you know, I was memorable looking to me and um, I got kept for two more rounds. Wow. And, and they cut me after the first round and I started walking off and the stage manager said, Mr. Robbins wants you to stay. So then they kept me through another round 
And then I think they realized, wait, this is the clown that couldn't dance in the first place. But yeah, you know, I faked my way through that, that I got, I made it through uh, three callbacks in that dance audition that day. So that was kind of cool. Then um, when I moved to New York, uh, my first audition was for Bring Back Birdie. And I had three callbacks for that. And that I thought, wow, this was, it was going great. And of course, we all thought Bring Back Birdie. My God, Bye Bye Birdie was a huge, huge hit. So Bring Back Birdie, what could be better? And Cheetah Rivera and Donald O'Connor. And uh, so the final audition was on stage at I think the Lyceum. And they lined us all up like chorus line. Like that's what they did back then. We all stood in a line and they went down the line and we had to like tell what our you know, most recent show was and our name and step forward. And so chorus liney. And like most of the cast of West Side Story was there at callback because they were all like, that was toward the end of the run. So they were like looking for other jobs. And so they'd step out and every single one was like, uh, currently Arab in uh, the Broadway production of West Side Story. Uh, yes, Chino in the, 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 the. And so I walked out and I said, I played Chino in West Side Story at the Lyric Theater in Oklahoma. And they were like back in line. And uh, <laughs> and then I got cut and then I was sobbing. I went to the Equity Lounge and I called my mother. I was just crying and my mother cried with me because she knew the pain I was going through. So, um, but I did, I enjoyed, I enjoyed auditioning a lot. Yeah, yeah. And then how did Godspell sort of happen in that audition then? Oh yeah. And that was one of my first auditions too. And um, yeah, I just, you know, I just wanted to do Godspell. It didn't even occur to me like, you know, Equity Library Theater. I, heard, I knew it was like a good place to work. And uh, I wish they had that back. That was a great... Mm -hmm great showcase for people, you know, and uh, I just wanted to do Godspell and I couldn't imagine anybody better than me. I miss those days of being that cocky, you know, just being like, yeah, I am so Godspell. I don't know if that's a compliment to myself, but I was very Godspell. And um, yeah, so I auditioned and I was so cocky that I was unhopeful. I wanted to get it. And I wanted to be just in the show because I love the show and you know, just the thing, I love the music, everything about it just seemed like it would be fun and that I was a perfect fit. And then they called me and, you know, I wanted to be uh, Jeffrey, of course, uh, We Beseech Thee, or um, Judas, which was a stretch because, you know, I'm too like, <laughs> you know, Judas is such a heavy, but um, they, had, they offered me Herb on the phone. You know, Herb, he's like, he does the reprise of Learn Your Lessons Well. You know, he's got like the worst song. It turns out Herb's a great part, but I didn't know that. I just was like, learn your lessons well, reprise? That's horrible. So I was a little like disappointed and the stage manager was taken aback at like my nonchalance. I went, Herb, okay. And uh, he said, you know that, you know, 200 people auditioned for this and it's the best showcase in town. And if you don't have an agent, which you don't, then you should be very happy about getting this. So I said, all right, I'll do Herb. And uh it was a tough experience. And as you know, Liz Calloway did that as well. And uh, Liz and I had done gone to school for one quarter at Cincinnati Conservatory. She called it her drive-by schooling, which is funny. And um, so she's saying, uh, oh, bless the Lord, my soul, to perfection. And so we'd known each other. We were friends. And this really cemented our friendship. So we would go out um, to Beefsteak Charlie's where, you know, this is before your time, but they, you know, they would have like 
you could get like a, a beef steak and you could get all the sangria you wanted. It was like a bottomless glasses of sangria for all like for, you know, $9.99 or something. So we'd go there all the time after rehearsal was over because we're both broke. So any deals were good. Dallas barbecue was another one. And um, so we hung out a lot. We hung out a lot and we commiserated. Did it actually serve the purpose of a showcase? Did it help with? It really did. Um, it really, really did. Um, I got an agent from it. I got two agents from it. And so uh, I actually got three agents from it. I was a Ford oh. model. I was in the Ford models kid division from that show. And I did a lot of commercials um, thanks to that. Cause you know, uh, I looked young. I was 21, but I looked like I was 16. And so it was a great place. Agents really came and they paid attention and we were a young cast. So, you know, they're always looking for young, young talent and all that stuff. It was a little weird because, you know, like scenes like when you're at the crucifixion scene and all that stuff and you're, you know, Jesus is dying and we're all having this moment. And it was emotional to me. I was Unitarian, so I didn't know that much about the Bible, but I just was like, you know, it was emotional. And I noticed like several of my castmates who shall remain nameless, really just two, were really working harder than the rest of us to show their dramatic side at the crucifixion. And I thought, oh my God, they're show they're like trying to get an agent off Jesus. You know, so I thought it was a little weird. But um yeah, it was great. It was, it was, it was great. Um, and it was a lot of fun. It was a great cast. And Scott Bakula, you know, played Jesus. And you know, he was very dashing. Jesus, you know, very, he looked like surfer dude, Jesus, you know, and he was great. And uh, we've, a lot of us have kept in touch since then. And of course, you made your Broadway debut after this with Do Black Patent Leather Shoes Really Reflect Up. So how did that sort of come to be as well? You might want to hold for applause from the <laughs> listeners. Thank you. Thank you so much. I know this is an exciting moment. Well, yes. Yeah, so that... Okay, so let's see, after Godspell, I worked up at Goodspeed Opera House. And then during Goodspeed, I got do black patent leather shoes really reflect up. Shoes. Well, there was at that time, uh, they were auditioning for Merrily We Roll Along. Think about when we did Godspell, even though Liz knew she was in Merrily, they'd had auditions earlier. And I'd auditioned once. And then during, they kept auditioning for Merrily. And during, while I was at Goodspeed, I got a call back. Um, to go back to Merrily, they were going to bring in for the talk show host guy, the guy that interviews Charlie Kringest for the talk show. And so they were only calling three people in and you had to like commit to, yes, you could go right into rehearsals in a week and do all this. And I couldn't get out of my contract at Goodspeed. And I was crushed because Merrily We Roll Along was it. That was the show we all wanted to be in. And it was just looming over us for so long. I just felt like it was around forever and everybody was talking about it. And of course we all wanted to do it. And um, I was so crushed. I was up at Goodspeed and I was like, they're not gonna let me out to go do my dream show. All I wanna do is work with Stephen Sondheim and Hal Prince and Liz and do Merrily. Oh. But during that time, I was auditioning for Do Black Patent Leather Shoes Really Reflect Up, which was another kid's show, you know, based on those Catholic books that John Powers had written about life in Catholic school. And they were huge hits. And the show had been running in Chicago for four years and was an enormous hit outside Chicago in a smaller theater in Summit, Illinois. And so I'd heard of it and I had all these great auditions. And uh, so... Um, 
I was called back and while I was at Goodspeed, they said, well, can you stick around uh, or can you come back in a week to do the dance audition um, on your day off? And I said, yes, 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 yes. And it turns out that my girlfriend at the time, Vicki Lewis, was also called back for that day. Vicki and I had gone to college together and she had just moved to New York and uh, Davis Gaines, who was, I was working at Goodspeed with. And so we were all in the same group. There were like five of us in this group and we just all happened to be together. So Vicki talked to somebody who had done the dance audition and got the combination from them because she was a great dancer, really great. She still is, but she's, she was a great dancer. And Davis and I, not as good, you know, we moved well, but not great. And Tommy Walsh was the choreographer, you know, superstar from Chorus Line and Tommy Toon's sidekick and all that. And uh, so we learned the combination from Vicky taught it to us. And she was like, okay, you, now you've got to act like when we're doing the audition, like you're learning it as he's teaching it to you, okay? It's very important. We're like, <laughs> Vicky, it's not my first rodeo, okay? <laughs> so I was like, yes, of course, of course, of course. So we're doing the dance audition. We were auditioning on stage at the, um, oh, New Amsterdam Theater. Upstairs, I believe it was. You know, that was like, that was like the roof of where people would go at after the Ziegfeld Follies and after shows and they'd go up to that roof and there was a stage up there. And uh, so I, we were doing learning the combination from Tommy and I just forgot at one point, you know, I was just like sweating and I got excited and I continued for like eight more counts. I was like, before he taught it to us and everybody stopped and they're just watching me as I'm doing ball change, ball change, turn. And <laughs> Tommy just stared at me. He was very deadpan and hilarious, but dry and scary. So scary to a 23 year old. And um, he said, what's that about? <laughs> he looked at him and I said, I just, I know your style so well. I just, I understand you. And people kind of chuckled around me and he kind of rolled his eyes and we kept going. And then I got it. And then he and I talked about it over drinks when we were trying out at the Walnut Street in Philadelphia. And he said, I knew, I knew you knew it. I knew. <laughs> what would it be like to work with him in rehearsal as well? And Mike Nussbaum, who was the director? Oh, Mike Nussbaum. Um, I wish I'd known what a great actor Mike Nussbaum was. I wasn't familiar with him as an actor. And, you know, he had directed this show a lot and it wasn't a big hit show you know and so we were like when I got the show you know my agent said oh you're happy about it and I was like yes it's coming to Broadway you know it's a production contract and it's it's like yeah, of course I'm thrilled and she was like okay <laughs> and, um, and you know it was a very out there show I didn't get it because I didn't go to school in Catholic schools and a lot, you know, we didn't trust the material totally. It was charming and funny, but it was so many inside jokes that I didn't get. A lot of nun jokes. And I just never thought it was that hilarious. And it was a really delightful cast of people. The cast was all fun, but I don't think anybody in the cast totally trusted the material. And yeah. I don't think that even Tommy Walsh, Tommy took it and just tried to Broadway it up. And, you know, he just was, he was Broadway from that top of his head to the tips of his feet you know it just like he just exuded Broadway and we loved him we were in awe of him and he knew how to talk to us he was haughty and arrogant but delightful and creative and moody and everything 
you dreamt of and so funny. I mean, he just had such a wry, wry wit. And um, so I loved him and I thought he did great work. There were some really wonderful things in it. There was a big uh, patent leather shoe ballet that closed act one. And, you know, where we wear these oversized patent leather shoes and do this wild dance where you're leaping and, and doing all that stuff. And that, that was part of the show from the beginning, but um, he just did great work. And he, you know, he tried to Broadway zhuzh it up as much as he could, but, you know, Mike, Mike was tough because, you know, they had done so many productions and he knew where the laughs were and we did not know where the laughs were. And we were a very young, unseasoned cast, except for Russ Thacker, who was our lead. And God, Russ was, you know, way into his 30s at that point. And uh, I mean, I don't know way, but he seemed ancient to me. I was 24, 23, 24. He was probably, you know, 32, but... He seemed so old and, uh, you know, Maureen Moore played the lead girl and she had done Dainty June and Gypsy. And so she had a quite a, a Broadway background, but, and Bob Fitch, um, as you know, and he was, Bob was the best, Bob was the best. And he was very unjudgmental of the material. He just did his work and he was uh, loving and paternal and fun. And, and, you know, he was a great man to be at the helm. But yeah, it was tough. And I'm sure we drove Mike Nussbaum crazy. And I remember we did our first run through and they brought in the entire workshop cast of nine, for God's sake. Oh God, it was so painful up at that New Amsterdam theater. And all the broads from nine were there. And, you know, some of them knew Catholic jokes, but a lot of them didn't. And this was our first audience. And we had things, you know, where the nuns would hit us with rulers and I'd go sprawling on the floor. And there were just so many jokes and they weren't laughing. The oh. girls from nine did not think it was funny. And Tommy Toon, I caught his eye at one point. He was just staring at us. <laughs> it was scary. And I changed a couple of my bits. I didn't fall on the floor um, when I was supposed to, you know, get in trouble. I was just so embarrassed. And Mike Nussbaum just screamed at all of us, said, the only way this is going to work if you, if you all commit 2000%, you can't be embarrassed about this stuff. And, and he was absolutely right. He was so right. But we didn't know, you know, we, we, it was, uh, it was tough going. And um, then we opened in Philadelphia and it was a huge hit and the audiences were screaming. And I just thought it was the funniest show that I didn't understand at all. But, you know, it was a big hit in Philadelphia. And, uh, you know, then my friends would come in from New York and they go, mm, mm. <laughs> so it was crazy. And then when we moved to New York, they were going to do a small, they were going to move it to a small Broadway house. And then the Alvin opened up because of all the flops at the Alvin Theater. Like Merrily, we roll along, Little Johnny Jones, uh, Into the Light, was that what it was called? And another one. Oh, Little Prince and the Aviator. Oh. There were all these shows. I don't know if it was Into the Light. Was that the one? Yeah. About the, about the Shroud of... Yes. Wasn't that the one? I think that was part of the slew of hits. <laughs> so you know, that, that landed at the Alvin Theater. None of them ran. And so that's, then the producers in Chicago saw, you know, that, okay, well, why get this, do a small Broadway house when we could get the Alvin Theater and get so much money? And that was just the biggest mistake because it was a tiny cartoon of a show. And it was funny, you know, it was funny. And it was a tough show. I understand, like, they couldn't do it off Broadway because it had a big cast. So it was like, well, you, how do you make any money, you know? So, it, 
but it just looked cheap. You know, it was like cardboard cutouts were the set. And, and uh, I was almost disappointed because then uh, moose murders happened like a week or two after we opened. And that really eclipsed us. Like we didn't, we weren't even like the biggest flop of that year. You know, we weren't even up on Joe Allen's wall. And I was like, well, we weren't bad. We should get a poster up there too. But Moose Murders was such a phenomenal turkey that that just totally, people forgot about Pat Mother Shoes. <laughs> and how have you generally felt throughout your career about critics and reviews and all of that? Oh my God. Well, you know, that being my, well, let's see, Godspell was well-received. Um, I, was, I was always nervous. I was always way too nervous about critics, but um yeah, Frank Rich and the Times, he could be really tough. And my first shows, um, he didn't like like that. And was, he uh, said something like, with more untalented and unappealing performers than the show knows what to do with or something. And, you know, there and all the, the whole cast went on to do great things, you know. But at the time, I don't know, that, that stuff, it rolled off me, you know. It was like, I laughed kind of out of it. But I was crushed, you know, that. I, I was crushed that, you know, it was our Broadway debut and yeah. that it was over so fast. It was so sad because we were such a hit in Philly. And then once that review came out, well, they were all, none of them are really great reviews, but uh, the audiences were just half empty at the Alvin and they were just, you know, they were terrible. We were all so sad. It was a very good educational experience to kind of show you, you know, this, this can happen to you. Um, so yeah, you know, through the years, uh, I was I was probably more aware and concerned about critics than I wish that I would have been um, because of the of some of the turkeys I did right off the bat. But uh, then around like in 90, I did uh, Candide at the Guthrie Theater in Minneapolis and I played Candide and it was a great cast. Peter Bartlett and Jonathan DeCuchitz and um, Bridget Brady and Mary Lee Rosado and um, Oh my God, we just, it was great. And it, it was like, wow, you know, you can have everything. Cause you know, in New York, you are so concerned about the critics because it's like, do you have a job or do you not? You know, you wanna see like, is there a future here or not? And you know, when you're on the road, you're gonna run regardless of what the reviews are. You know, you have your contract that, you know, so it's not as imp important um, unless it's a commercial run. Um, about those, about the critics. So, but that kind of changed my thinking. Like I, I, I developed a confidence and I also developed a, I was struggling like in shows, like, oh, I was taking things coming along and everything was full of Sturm and Drang and all this. And Candide happened and Garland Wright directed it. And he was a magnificent director. Um, it was like, wow, you can work with a great director at a great theater company with a great cast and make really good money. And, have a great piece. Everything about it was so great. And I just went, everything does fall in place. Yeah. If you just let it, it will happen. And so, you know, I'd had some, some certainly fun moments during the eighties, but that one is, was really one of the first where everything came together and I was as happy as I've ever been in my life. And so one of the shows that you did right after Do Black Pad and Leather Shoes was just so off-Broadway. So mm. for those who don't know, could you say a little bit about what that show was or was about? Oh, golly. Um, you've done your research. <laughs> Nicely done. Well, Just So was another show that had been kicking for a long time. And uh, it was based on Rudyard Kipling's Just So stories. And it was about 
it was a they're adorable stories it was like how the elephant got his trunk and how the camel got her hump and how other people got other things leopard got his spots and um david zippel um my friend and yours wrote the lyrics and doug casaris uh who's a wonderful composer who made a lot of money doing jingles commercials you know all sorts of things wrote the music and it was a great score and uh so I'd gotten offered it on the road and I couldn't do it in Pennsylvania. And then they brought it to the Jack Lawrence Theater. That was on, it was on 48th Street. Was it across from like Rosa's Mexicano now? But it was like a mid-house theater, mid-size house, um, like 499 seats, beautiful state of the arts. And then there was a smaller theater there as well where Cooney Lemel ran for several years. And um, so we did it there, you know, and, uh, it it didn't really it didn't totally work um it was a lot of styles mixed into one i thought it was adorable i love the score there's some great songs i really wish they'd done an album and we had a great cast andre de shields played the eldest eldest magician and i played man they wrote this character of man who's trying to find his purpose and he's around all these animals and he's like what's the matter with me you know everybody's got these great things the rhinoceros got his horn everybody's got stuff i'm just this you know, poor pathetic soul what's my secret and what's my purpose in life and um uh yeah you know it just the whole thing didn't work it was kind of half cartoon and 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 half very moving and fun and and uh the book by mark saint germain was very um very fun funny and um modern and yeah all together it just didn't quite you know didn't quite work yeah yeah and so a very different show that you did was Promenade, the revival of Promenade. Yes. And, yes. And what was it like to be playing this this role too, which was 105? Oh my God. Well, Promenade, we did, you know, Promenade for people that don't know it, opened the Promenade Theater on 76th and Broadway. It was Madeline Kahn's kind of first big starring vehicle that I'm aware of in the 70s. And uh, it was by um, Al Carmine and... Maria Irina Fornes and just they were incredible writers and he wrote a lot for the Judson Church and um, it's got a score of you know very kind of Kurt Vile Brechtian kind of very you know Germanic and dramatic and a little Jacques Brel shit um, which is not Germanic at all but uh, you know a little touch of that and I I loved that score it's very raw and um, so Albert Harris, who ran Theater Off Park, uh, had done the original, he was in the original company. And so he put together this revival. He was obsessed with this show. And uh, he put together this revival of it at his theater, Theater Off Park. And um, so I played, it was about two prisoners, number 105 and 106, who were born in prison. Uh, their mother has them in prison and they basically, they've just grown up very protected. They don't know what the world is outside. And so they're like real innocent, real candied kind of figures. And I did it with Tim Ewing. He was my brother. And so everything we did was in thirds. And Regina O'Malley played the servant girl who was um, Madeline Kahn's character. And uh, it was a fascinating piece. Um, 
you know, I don't think we made any money and it was a showcase and it was very peculiar. And we did like the invited dress. It's always on the invited dress. And uh, a couple of my friends came, I won't say their names, Vicki Lewis and Davis Gaines. I just keep talking about them in this thing. They came to the invited dress and uh, like the audience was just silent. It like, they didn't get it. And it was because it's a strange piece and we were still trying to find our way with it. We didn't exactly trust it yet at that point. And, um, <laughs> and um, I remember Vicky coming backstage and taking my hand. Davis just stared at me and Vicky took my hand and she said, try to get out of this as soon as you can. <laughs> I said, thanks, that's great. And then we opened the next night and it got rave reviews. So it just shows you like, we never know. You never know, you know? I loved it. But I mean, I had more friends come to see that show and they were like, what the hell is this thing about? But um, I really love it. It's it's one of my most played cast albums. We didn't do the album, but I listened to the original cast. Unfortunately, Madeline Kahn's not on it, but um, I love the score so much. And one of the songs, The Moment Has Passed, um, is one of my, I've been singing it in probably every cabaret show that I ever do. I sing The Moment Has Passed in it, even in my Jerry Herman show. He didn't write it, but I like the song so much. So what the heck? As far as your personal preference, do you prefer to develop shows from their very beginning or to do revivals sometimes? Or Well, good question. Uh, they both have their merits. Um, you know, there's nothing like originating something. There's nothing like putting your stamp on it and being there and creating it and working with it and working with the writer and working with the director and, you know, just being part of the evolution of the character. It's, it's amazing. And when you have that validation with the people you're working with that, are, that actually created the role, um, oh my God, there's nothing like it. You know, it's just, it's fantastic. That said, there's a lot of sturm and drawing when you're creating a role because you're trying to figure it all out. And, you know, you're like, when you can't figure something out, you're like beating your head against the wall. What's the matter with me? Somebody else could find this better. And what, what's, why can't I find this? And, you know, you really, there's a lot of drama and, and fixation going on. There are, you know, when I've replaced like um, in shows, you know, like Wicked and Falsettos, you know, you can kind of somebody else do the template. So they've, they've done all the work and I can kind of pick and choose like, oh, I love that when they did that. And I did that a lot with Chip Zion. I mean, he was just, I loved him so much in falsettos and it was, it was daunting replacing him who I just thought everything he did was so great. So, you know, I did stuff that just worked because why not? And then I was able then to find my own way as well. And do my own stuff but you know a lot of the work's been done for you so it's there's something nice about that as well yeah and how did you find your niche in terms of the kind of roles that you would be cast in at the beginning my niche well gosh you know I felt that I was I wasn't at the you know I was like a quirky juvenile so you know I wasn't a leading man I wasn't a comic, I was a quirky juvenile. So when they wanted like a leading juvenile guy that was offbeat or peculiar, then I was on that list. But I felt like I was never like on the top of the romantic lead list and I was never at the top of the hilarious comic list. So I, you know, I did a lot of different things because, you know, I did Candides and Pippins and, and had to, you know, do 
be sing romantic songs and uh, and do that and and I loved it. I loved it. But I also loved being funny and doing that as well. So I I was always doing a lot of peculiar interesting stuff. Yeah. So that was kind of my niche that I didn't really have a niche, you know. Yeah. And so this seems like a good time to segue into Pride Month and all of that. And so what was your experience like being a gay actor on Broadway and film and all of that? Uh, well, you know, unlike all the, since I wasn't a romantic leading man, um, I didn't have to worry about that as much, but I, it took me a long time to come out of the closet. It took me a very long time. And I don't know why, because my parents were Unitarian, liberal, and, you know, I'm sure they knew. I mean, I certainly knew. I knew when I was younger, but, um, you know, I was, I dated girls, you know, all through. I'm sure I just screwed up many girls' heads because I just was so confused for so long. I was so confused, but I always knew in the back of my mind, you know, since I was a kid, you know, I knew, oh, well, there's something else going on here at play. And um, so, though I was very much in the closet in, you know, when I first moved to New York, um, I still had my circle of friends that, you know, I could be myself with. And, you know, I had relationships. I was always in a relationship, always in a relationship. I mean, what's that about? I just, you know, I guess I was just so scared to be on my own. So I was always seeing somebody. So, you know, that was, it was interesting, but I would watch, you know, my, my, friends who were leading men who were very quiet about it and and I understood that you know it was different back then in the 80s you know they were just really really um in the closet about it and I felt bad for them yeah yeah did you ever experience any kind of homophobia or anything like that or oh gosh that's interesting did I in musical theater no <laughs> no <laughs> <laughs> I really didn't ever. Um, in LA, maybe a little more, you know, I mean, sometimes in LA, I think there were, plus by the time I got to LA, you know, I would like burst out of the closet. So, um, you know, I think sometimes people were very, it was a little easier for them to peg me out in LA. And there was a time where I was only going up for gay roles. And I did a I did a sitcom, I was a, a recurring on this show. Uh, I did two seasons of it uh, on Showtime called Rude Awakening. And it took place in AA, which I knew nothing about. And uh, I played Sherilyn Fenn and Lynn Redgrave were in it. And uh, I played Sherilyn Fenn's gay sponsor, Chad. And he was so gay. And that was like, it was great to get like, oh, wow, I had like nine, um, episodes in this thing. I had a really nice arc uh, in it, but he was so gay and he was kind of, you know, he was kind of standard gay. He was kind of like, uh, okay, it's kind of a typical gay guy, you know, and I tried to play against it, but I, I'm not sure that I, I was successful uh, with that. But, um, and that kind of pegged me for a while. Everything that I went in were for like, you know, snotty gay guys and, um, waiters who had a gay edge and you know things like that and and I was like gee okay that's fine but I do so much more than that you know I'm a character man and uh you know who happens to be gay 
So for a while there, I felt that as I'm getting older now and, you know, they're getting used to me and I'm getting used to them. I think, you know, I'm, I'm, it's more well-rounded now. Yeah. And so this is also a good lead into talking about some of your work on screen as well. And so some people might not realize they know you from being the Lucky Charms Leprechaun. And so that's sort of an unusual thing. How did that come into? Gosh, yes. I, uh, that was the best gig of my life. Oh my God. I think I worked like six days a year and made so much money. Um, let's see. Unfortunately, I spent it all because I was living on it sometimes. Um, that I used that just to pay my bills. Well, yeah. So I auditioned, I auditioned, um, you know, with all the other leprechaun wannabes and it was the same guy for like, oh God, Arthur, somebody was his name. And, uh, what is oh gosh, I should know his name. And anyway, it was the same guys, the guy that I grew up with listening to be the leprechaun. And I love Lucky Charms cereal, even though I know those marshmallows, I knew there was something wrong with those marshmallows. That's <laughs> like not a normal marshmallow, right? Do you, like, Do you eat um, Lucky Charms? Occasionally, but but not all. It's just straight sugar, Charles. Let's face it. Yes, yes. So, yeah, so I auditioned and they wanted us to sound as close to him as possible. And I was a good mimic. And I think I was doing, was it, I, I think it was after Forever Plaid. And um, so I went in and I was kind of like, God, I don't know. I hadn't really picked my voice yet. And I wasn't sure what that guy I hadn't been watching Saturday morning cartoons at that point. And um, Ken Jennings. Okay. So this is what happened. Ken Jennings, you know, Ken from original Tobias and Sweeney Todd, you're in town and I just love him. And, you know, he's very much more intense actor than I am. And he was there auditioning. He looks like the Lucky Charms leprechaun. I mean, he's just so cute. And so he came out of the room and he was still in character because he's that method. He was still in character and he goes, oh, Jason, how are you? Oh, it's so nice to see you. Oh, it's good luck to you. Oh, I can stop talking this way. And he left. And so then I went in and I basically imitated Ken Jennings and I got the part. Oh. It's a dog eat leprechaun world out there. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, isn't that horrible? I should have paid Ken Jennings 10% because it's really all for Ken. I told him about it when I saw him after that. I said, you know, I just imitated you and got the job. So <laughs> I guess I did a better Ken Jennings than he did. But uh, yeah, so I did that. You know, I introduced the rainbow shape and uh, let's see what else. I did the rainbow shape, the pot of gold and one other shape, balloon. I think I did the balloon as well. So it was a great gig. Yeah, yeah. And something else you did was writing and directing Gotta Move recently in 2017. Oh, yeah. Um, sure. uh, a fellow that I knew, Seth Hampton, that I, I've taught uh, master classes at Yale Cabaret Conference uh, for several summers. And um, and one of the guys that was uh, studying there, Seth Hampton, who lives in Los Angeles, who's a great dancer and singer. And uh, so um, I directed his show and he did it out here in LA. And, uh, oh, we had a great time. He has an amazing story. And, um, Oh my God, we worked on it for what seems like forever because he was so meticulous. I'm not, I'm like, throw it up there and see what they see what they laugh at and see what they don't. But he was very meticulous and was good for me, you know, because we had to spend a lot of time with it. And, uh, and he forced me to, you know, stop and, you know, smell the roses and 
take care of each moment. So yes, we did that. We did that. I think that's on my IMDb. That's where you brought that up, isn't it? That's funny. Yeah, that was a good time. Yeah. And so I'd love to ask also about two of the classic sitcoms that you were on, which were Friends and Frasier. Did you see the reunion, Ren? Yes. I cried. I just cried so much. Yeah. Just great. Do you you know Friends probably really well, right? Yeah, I do. Because it just plays forever. It just stays in the public eye. And I love that kids now know it. And uh, not that you're a kid, Charles. Really, I think you're the smartest person I know. You're, you're just oh, like your brain. You're just so like, I hope oh, so I'm amazed by you. Um, yeah, so Friends was great. Um, I, I auditioned for that. That was great. And I did it. It was, you know, it was, it was, it was a funny experience. I played that casting director that Joey auditioned for. He played and, the ca- uh, it was a casting director. So I played him with like a real edge, you know? And yeah. so uh, I walked in, I was like eating potato chips for my audition. And I was like, you know, on my cell phone. And I wasn't, you know, I was really rude. And I just played him really like a jerk. And they loved it. They laughed. And, you know, and so I got it. And then when I went in to do the thing, the director, Michael Limbeck, came up and said, we loved your audition so much. I said, oh, thank you. Thank you. And he said, but you know, you can't do it that way, which is always, I hate that. It's like, damn it. So, uh, but I understood it was too, it was way too upstaging of Matt LeBlanc. So, uh, you know, but I still had a real edge and, and always got great laughs in the rehearsals and, and the people were really nice, especially Lisa Kudrow and David Schwimmer. They were just like, they were so welcoming and they were so complimentary and they would talk to me and made me feel you know, they were real actors and they knew how to treat other actors and they just couldn't have been warmer. And um, so anyway, so we did it for the audience that night uh, on the taping night. And um, they show like the previous episode, which hasn't been aired yet. They showed like Joey being fired from Days of Our Lives. And it was very sympathetic, you know, like the, everybody felt so sad for Joey and he just got fired. And there I was, this casting director, being so rude to him and being so dismissive and um they hissed me they didn't laugh at me the audience hissed me and I was so mortified because I was so used to getting all these laughs and I thought it was so funny and I didn't care I just I expected a spinoff of the casting director to have my own show and um (laughs) so um they uh the writers like surrounded me afterwards and said okay we need to bring him down. We need to bring the casting director down a little bit, make him a little nicer. And I said, but he's a casting director. (laughs) Yes. Well, think of a nice casting director. We know you're thinking about, you know, some other people. So I, I still managed to keep a little bit of an edge, but I had a twinkle in my eye with it and it was better. Yeah. It was better. Let's just face it. It was better, but I was sorry because I like the edgier guy. And then Frasier was the other one that I was curious. Oh, about. and Frasier, yes, and Frasier. I played uh, the piano at a the bar where the all the uh, cranes congregated. All the the three crane gentlemen all had been ditched by their girlfriends. They all left them. They all had found love in their life, and then they all got ditched, and they ended up back at this bar where I was the piano bar player, and so. Uh, I only knew one song. I guess I really wasn't a piano bar guy. I was just happened to sit down and play the piano. I only knew one song, which was Goldfinger. So I played Goldfinger and sang it. And Goldfinger, wah, wah, wah. And then they all joined me. And 
the great part about it was it was a half hour show and we sat down and read it. And there were so many stories that they were telling with each of their romances that they ended up making it into an hour episode. So we all got paid double for doing the same amount of work. So I like that. Yes. <laughs> the sad thing is those, those short things are, you know, that's what people see you on. You know, you've done like we all do our, you know, some of the best work that we've done in our lives, you know, on stage, you know, are for the people that saw you on stage. But, you know, those little TV gigs, I think I had four or five lines on Frasier and more people have seen me on that. And it's like, oh, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I was fine. I was fine. <laughs> yeah. And so Stardust was the second Broadway show you did. And how did that happen? So Stardust, we started at Theater Off Park uh, with Al Harris, who had done Promenade. And it was a tribute to Mitchell Parrish. And it was a tiny show. And uh, four out of six of us went to Cincinnati Conservatory in the cast. It was crazy. Maureen Brennan, Jimmy Walton, Kim Criswell, and myself. And then uh, Andre DeShields again. Andre and I both went from Just So into Stardust. And a singer by the name of Chel Bautier, who was a very popular singer at Freddy's and, um, you know, the high-end cabarets around then. And she just had a just a silky, beautiful voice. And uh, so we did this review and it was just tiny at this theater. And then and it got great reviews and it was just very basic, a loving tribute to this lyricist Mitchell Parrish, who wrote the lyrics to Stardust and Sophisticated Lady and uh Sleigh Ride and Deep Purple and Moonlight Serenade and just on and on. What a catalog. And so we got these great reviews and it was like, well, that's good. It's a hit. You know, that's really good. And then one of the producers from Sophisticated Lady saw it and she said, well, we got to move this to Broadway. And we were like, do you, though? <laughs> Tiny show. I mean. There was just so little, you know, cute staging, little movement, little, little, you know, and they moved it to Broadway and we were all like, okay. And we moved it to the Biltmore and we were on an endangered theater contract at the Biltmore because that was one of the theaters they were going to tear down at one point. So um, <laughs> we did it there and they expanded it and Henry Latang came in and choreograph because Jimmy Walton's a you know master tap dancer and um, Andre DeShields moves spectacularly so they added you know they expanded a little made the costumes a little nicer and uh, Patrice Serrero choreographed it as well I sounded like Valerie Cherish I've just all of a sudden discovered like a Patrice Serrero discovered her as well okay so you might want to think about that <laughs> I don't know why I'm starting to imitate Lisa Kudrow as Valerie Cherish it's very peculiar but it's pretty good isn't it yes yes that's Thank you, Charles. Um, you're welcome. <laughs> and um, yeah, so we did that and we moved, we moved to the Biltmore and it ran like a hundred shows. You know, yeah. I think a lot of people came into the theater accidentally because I heard we got like a lot of Japanese tourists who thought that we were Starlight Express. <laughs> so they got confused because we were like, wow, we're getting a lot of Japanese tourists at uh, Stardust. And then you realize, oh, they got confused and they thought it was the different show. So, but we ran a hundred shows and then the Tonys came out and we didn't get nominated for anything. So then it shut down right after yeah. that. But it, you know, it was pleasurable just because it was, you know, and Mitchell Parrish was alive, so he was there. And a lot of the old songwriters, uh, Sammy 
uh, Khan came and a lot of the, you know, um, you know, the old guys uh, showed up and, and it was, that was very special to meet them and to be in their world. Yeah. So that was fun. And then Falsettos was, of course, your third show with replacing, as you were saying, Ship Zion. And yeah. how did you sort of find your acting there? And your oh, God. I, uh, it's probably just my favorite experience I've ever had. And uh, I'd auditioned, I think I only auditioned once. They had done like a small tour of it in Florida or something. And I'd auditioned for Marvin and Mendel because I was kind of both. I was a little Marvin, a little Mendel, you know? And um, and then they kind of started saying, oh, there's a Mendel thing going on there. And then I'd auditioned and then didn't hear anything. And then uh, I don't remember how long it was. And then they called me in and said, well, we'd like to offer a Mendel on Broadway. And I was just, oh my God, I, I almost fainted. I love that show so much. It meant so much to me. And um, I'd seen Falsetto Land when that was off Broadway. And then I saw the show on Broadway when they combined the two acts. And I knew so many people in the cast and I couldn't go backstage to see them because I was so devastated by it. You know, I just couldn't speak. And um, so I was thrilled. It was daunting because as I said, I love Chip's Zion so much. And I thought, oh, well, how am I gonna find my own way here? Because he's, he was so specifically genius. And, uh, but I did. I did, and I, I loved it. And uh, I closed it. I didn't do it that long. I closed it on Broadway. They offered me to go out and originate the national tour and I got another show instead. And so I couldn't do that. And Bill Finn said, Jason, I can't believe you're gonna turn down the tour of Shadows for a review. Because <laughs> Grand Night for Singing, we had done at Rainbow and Stars and it was moving to Broadway. And I said, Bill, I've got to do this. The character's name is Jason. I, I've originated this, I've got to do this. And, he was like, you, you can't do a review. I know he sounds like Mr. Haney on, on Green Acres a little bit, but that's my imitation of Bill Finn. But uh, so I didn't, I didn't go out on tour until the end. Adam Howard ended up doing the tour and then he left to do Merrily Roll Along that I'd auditioned for that I didn't get. So Adam came and got that. And then I replaced Adam on the tour. <laughs> so it's kind of funny. Yeah. But I loved it. I loved it so much. I did it with Greg Edelman and uh, Randy Graff and Sean McDermott and, uh, oh God, Heather McRae and Maureen Moore. We just had the most incredible time. I loved that show. I'd never been in anything where people were sobbing afterwards. They come into my dressing room and just sit down and just sob. They just wanted to sit there and just, you know, decompress. And it, it just was so moving. I loved it. And did you have a lot of interaction with William Finn or with James Lapine coming in? Uh, yes, I did. Um, Bill Finn was around a lot and uh, we got along great. You know, the, my first run through, my put in for falsettos, because I, I ended up going on sooner than I think I was supposed to have two weeks. And um, they ended up putting me on quicker than that. And they were like, you know, you're learning this fast. And how would you feel? Because Chip would love to go out of town. He's been working, you know, nonstop. And so he'd love to get out of here. And so I was like, yeah, sure. So they did, moved everything up for me. And I did my put in and it was my first rehearsal with Randy Graff and everybody. And, you know, there are all those squares. You had to like be in the right square. So I was so nervous standing in the right square on the right place on stage and all that. And so and then Bill Finn decided he was going to come watch it. And it was I was it was very overwhelming. Um, 
afterwards, he came up to me and said, Jason, you're playing Mendel like George M. Coham. <laughs> he was right. I was so like hard sell. And uh, it was hilarious. But he could say things like that to me. And I, yeah, I was like, yeah, you're right. I was. And, uh, you know, he's very, very blunt. I loved him so much and I got a sense of humor. And so I never, I never had a problem with it. And I knew he treated everybody that way. So um, James Lapine came to see the show. He didn't direct me during rehearsals. I was put in by the stage managers and they were great. And Bill had some notes for me as well, but then James Lapine came and saw me and he gave us notes in the lobby after the show. And, you know, he's going around and, you know, he's very nice. It was, it was so thrilling to, you know, get to sit there with him. And he looked at me and I, he just kind of looked at me and said, yeah, so you're the guy that the audience just loves, aren't you? And I don't think he meant it as a compliment. So I was like, thank you. <laughs> That was one of those, like, I liked it because when he saw it, the audience did happen to really get into my character that night. But, uh, you know, it was like one of those that I've thought about <laughs> for the rest of my life. Like, well, uh, OK, I'm not sure what to do with that. That was really his only note for me. So I don't know if he just threw his hands up or just was like, you know, I don't know what. But, um, you know, it was it was it just was I just loved it. I, I could have done it forever. It's probably as happy as I've ever been performing. So a grand night for singing, as you were mentioning, was the next thing right after that. And so that had started before Falsettos at Rainbow and Stars and then? Yes. So I had done that. Um, I had done several of those shows up there. I've done a lot of reviews, Charles, before you were born, probably before your parents were born. And um, so, yes, we had done, it was the 50th anniversary of Oklahoma. And uh so they did a Rodgers and Hammerstein review and Walter Bobby directed it. And um, so we did it. It was uh, Karen Ziemba and Vicki Clark, whatever happened to them. And <laughs> Winter Stellar, who I love, and um, Marty Vidnovic and me. And so we did it and it just was a huge hit. And we were just part of the circle. We were going to Mary Rogers' house for Christmas parties and hanging out with Hal Prince and all Celeste home. There were all these events for the Oklahoma anniversary. And I mean, it just was, it was so exciting. I loved it so much. Um, and um, we had a great time. So we did that. It was a big hit. And then I did falsettos. And then my agents called and said, well, the notice is going up. This is the last week of falsettos. And I, I was crushed. I was eating at Sarah Beth's kitchen with Jonathan DeCuchitz. We were having a brunch at Sarah Beth's kitchen and I checked in with my agents and they said, Falsettos is, you know, it's closing. And it's like, oh no, no, no. And then literally a half hour later, my agent called and said, oh, but a grand night for singing is moving to the roundabout theater. So you'll be starting rehearsals in a month. And so it was such an incredible, like, you know, another moment of serendipity. Yeah. So, um, so we moved it to the roundabout and Karen Zamba couldn't go on with it because she got crazy for you, which um, you make a lot more money on the national tour of crazy for you than you do doing a review at the roundabout theater. So she took that and uh, they replaced her with Alison Reed. 
uh, who, you know, I was just like fanboying out. And I, I didn't want Karen to go because I love her. I've worked with her so many times and everybody loves Karen Ziemba. It's like, yes, I know. But she's just the greatest. But when they told me Alison Reed was replacing her, I just went through the roof. And we just became fast, furious, platonic lovers. We just had a great rapport and she was, she was wonderful. She was just great. So we, we had a great time. You know, they had to expand the show from the 70 minute version that we had up at um, Rainbow and Stars to a two act version of it at the roundabout. How did the splitting up of the songs go? And did that change at all on Broadway with Alison Reed coming in? Uh, no, I think everybody kept with the songs that they had because, you know, Allison and Karen were similar triple threat types and um, had similar vocal ranges. And so we all kept the songs that we had at Rainbow and Stars, but then they added stuff for us when they expanded the show. They added the man I used to be, da 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 da, da and that they made that into, they made like a, a Walter uh, and Pam Sousa, our choreographer, um, they made it into a, you know, kind of a little one act where Lynn Wintersteller and I get married and then I sow my wild oats one last time with, with Vicki Clark and Allison Reed and we did like this whole fun dance with a stairway, wasn't like a lot of stairs, but, uh, you know, and we did like a whole fun little dance, my last hurrah before I tie the knot. And um, so I thought, I thought it was so charming. I just loved doing this show. It was really, it was really special. And Fred Wells, I just have to say, Fred Wells, who did the, the musical direction and the arrangements, I think they're some of the most glorious arrangements that have ever been done for any show ever. He's just a miracle worker. I'd love to talk just a little bit more about Walter Bobby, too, because, of course, that's another great director. Walter was great. This was his big, like his first, you know, his. I know it was his Broadway debut. He's. I'm sure he directed before, but I think this was you know, one of the first things he had done, but it was definitely his Broadway debut. And, uh, you know, he was, he was very nurturing. He was very nurturing, he was very soulful, and he was very collaborative, which I really, really loved. Um, you know, it meant a lot to him, this material meant a lot to him, and it meant a lot to me. And, you know, he came up to me and said, so we're trying to find, you know, funny song for you you know it's like for you know Rogers and Hammerstein weren't known for their hilarious comic material you know and um so he was like you know throwing a couple things at me and he said you know what about Bloody Mary you could make Bloody Mary funny Bloody Mary is the girl I love maybe sing it as a heartfelt ballad or you know something and I was like ah I'd done all these shows at Rainbow and Stars and I did a lot of that I did a lot of like taking taking songs that weren't that funny and you know brocka brocka brocking them up and it's exhausting, <laughs> you know, it's just exhausting. Some nights they would play great and other times it'd be like, mm, not so much. So I said to him, you know, I said, you know, what would be great? I said, I've done a lot of those kind of shticky songs that are just silly and, and all that. And they're fun. You know, I love it. And we probably could find something fun with Bloody Mary. But I said, I would love to find a song that's like a thinking song where I'm like working it out and where I have something to play and I'm not just throwing it out there like, here's my sticky song, but something where I'm really trying to work the issue out and a, an acting piece where I go from A to B to, you know, figuring something out. And, and he was like, I got it. Or he goes, I hear you. I hear what you're saying. And, and so we had a day off and then he came back the next day and he said, how about this for 
try this on for size. What about Maria from a, The Sound of Music? And I said, Maria, like, you know, how do you solve a problem like Maria? Like the nuns, the nun song? You want me to put on a habit? And he said, no, 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 no. Like, you know, as you're singing it like about this girl that you just love, Maria, her name's Maria. And then we started going through the lyrics. When I'm with her, I'm confused, out of focus and bemused. And I never know exactly where I am. I'm predictable as weather. She's as flighty as a feather. She's a darling. She's a demon. She's a lamb. Now she could throw a whirling dervish out of world. She's gentle. She's wild. She's a riddle. Ugh, she's a child. She's a headache. She's an angel. She's a girl. How do you solve? I mean, it just, it was great. It was so great. And we had a ball doing it and it was very heartfelt. And sometimes the audiences would laugh and we, you know, we had shtick thrown in in the middle of it. Um, and then, you know, if they didn't laugh, then I had something to play, you know, so it was okay. But I loved that. I just, I, he just kept us in the mix and, and, it just, it was very collaborative and he used the talents of the people that he hired. And to me, that's one of the great things about doing a review. You know, you want to do a review because you want to, I want to feel as a performer that I've exhausted everything that I can do. That's what's fun about a review. You're not in the constraints of doing a role and telling that, that story. You just, you show different facets of you. And that to me is what's just gold about a review. And and Walter really tapped into everybody's strengths, you know, and I just felt like everybody had a very specific voice and um, and everybody was happy doing what they got to do. So I loved it. I loved working with them. And so this is going back in time a little bit, but you did the original production of a show that I love, which is Lucky Stiff with yes. Arnes and Flaherty. And so I would love to ask about them too. Oh my God. Well, first of all, I didn't actually originate the show. I did the cast album. Oh. So there were members of the original cast on the album, but they brought me in to play the optometrist. So, and I got to play Mary Testa's brother. Whatever happened to her? <laughs> and um, so that was really fun. And Judy Blazer also hadn't done the, the show. And Judy and I worked together a bazillion times. She's one of my greatest friends too, as is Mary. And um, um, and Evan Pappas had done it in DC. And so they brought people in who had done the show, but um, um, they kind of put together, they kind of handpicked this cast uh, to do it. Um, I knew Steve Flaherty from Cincinnati Conservatory. And um, I was there when Steve Flaherty and Lynn Ahrens met and they worked on their first piece together which was based on the movie Bedazzled. And th this was an ASCAP workshop and BMI workshop. And so they met and there was a conflagration in the universe. I mean, you know, sparks flew, shooting stars went off. I mean, the two of them just merged and it was spectacular. And so I was part of their first, I would do all the presentations of this show Bedazzled and they, um, we did the demo tapes and we'd perform it at the Dramatist Guild and we got to uh, present it for Stephen Sondheim and Richard Malpe and Charles Strauss and Stephen Schwartz. And I remember Sondheim after we did it, the presentation, he began his, his uh, notes with, well, first of all, let me just say that I am your biggest fan. 
to Steve and Lynn. I mean, they just, they were the golden couple. And they started writing Bedazzled for me. They wrote a song about how Stanley plays the oboe. And, you know, it was really, really fun. And it was amazing to watch. And I love both of them so much. And um, then they couldn't get the rights. Then they, they'd written the whole show practically and they tried to get the rights and they couldn't get it. And so they said, lesson learned. Next time you work on a show, get the rights first, then start working on the show. <laughs> So that was really uh, fun. So I was, I got to be around them, you know, in the day and uh, it was, it just was really, really fun to do. And so getting to do Lucky Stiff was, you know, it was a ball and uh, I didn't have the history of knowing the character. So I, it was kind of, you know, slam, bam, thank you, ma'am. And I was doing a grand night for singing. We were rehearsing it. I think we were in previews at the roundabout when we recorded the album. So, um, you know, I, I learned that very quickly and uh, worked very uh, quickly and uh, with Stephen Lynn and, oh, I love that score. Such a great score. And Tommy Walsh directed it originally. And so how did the sort of phenomenon that is Forever Plaid first, first begin? Forever Plaid was, uh, well, we, I started it at, at New Jersey at the American Stage Company and it was a two act show, like a play uh, with music. And it was a flop. The critics creamed it. The producer took his name off the title. I mean, it was just awful. I thought there was something really fun there. And I loved Stuart Ross, he's insane. He is insane. He's got the kind of mind that you just, that I relate to, you know, just constantly everything's a punchline. And um, <laughs> he's got a superior, superior brain and uh so i saw that there was something great there even though you know the critics hated it and um he always wanted to do this concept of it was a four guy singing group that was on their way to its first big gig got killed in a car crash and they never got to do their first show and so due to a hole in the ozone layer they come from heaven and get to perform their one night only show and then they go back to heaven so and i he told me that new concept that he was going to do for when we moved to new york and i said well that just sounds like the dumbest thing i've ever heard i'm available sign me up i trust you and uh we worked on it we had a ball and he put together the cast that he wanted you know from he had workshopped it a couple different variations uh before all that and uh and we did it and i was shocked that the at the reception the first night we did it and by the way vicky lewis was at our first preview because she's you know one of my dearest friends and she came backstage and went this is unbelievable jason and so i knew we have succeeded vicky lewis liked it <laughs> So it was great. It was amazing. I loved working with the company. I loved the boys, Guy Stroman, Stan Chandler, David Engel. And we, we, we were, we were everywhere. We were on the, you know, we did the Today Show and the Joan Rivers Show and we did uh, the Macy's Parade and we were absolutely everywhere. And then it went on and on. I left, Larry Rabin took over for me and they came out to LA and, you know, they, they made a lot more money than I did off Broadway, but um yeah, it was a really, it was really a, just a ball of a show. And I, to, that was like to, to be in something like that where audiences just went crazy. Not only did they love it for the comedy and it was funny, but the musicianship of it, the musicality of it. And it was both hilarious 
and also beautiful and musically stunning. And by the way, the musical director was James Raitt, who did the arrangements. And I had met James doing Stardust. He did the beautiful arrangements for Stardust. And um, he's no longer with us, but he, he was uh, a handsome, handsome, hilarious uh, genius. And he was John Raitt's nephew. So what is your opinion on staying in shows for a long time? Is that something you like or you find frustrating or? I got bored. I had never been in a long running show. And I was like, all I wanted to do is be in a hit. And God, I was exhausted by Forever Plant. And I was like complaining about it once in the dressing room. And I was like, oh my God. And you know, it was, it was a lot to sing. So it took a lot of energy and we had five show weekends and they even tried six show weekends for a oh. while. Oh my God. And we had, you know, a huge bottle of Advil backstage that we called Plaidville because our voices were so <laughs> exhausted. <laughs> and uh, so I was, you know, whining about it. Best way to make an actor complain is give him a job. And I was complaining about it. And James Ray just looked at me and he said, well, Jason, if you don't like it, then leave. And I was like, and so I was like, well, I guess I could. And then I went and saw Once on this Island on Broadway, like right around that time, like within a few days of having said that and being told that. And I went and saw Once on this Island on a matinee. And I, it's probably my favorite show in the world by Steve Flaherty and Lynn Aarons. And I was so bowled over and I went backstage. I was sobbing. I, I, I love it so much. Like I, I could start sobbing now how much I love that show. And LaShawn's and every, everybody in the cast was just so beautiful. And it gave, I was like, I am part of the New York theater community and I have a responsibility. I am in their world. I, I am, these are my peers and I'm in a hit show and I've got to hold my end up at this bargain. I've got to like, you know, carry my own here. And I'm proud to be here. This is what I've dreamed of. Now, granted, Forever Plaid, we weren't making the same money as they were in, you know, Once on this Island. I think we were making at that point 500 and something dollars a week. So, you know, but so I went in and that bought me another like four or five months. You know, I was like, okay, I'll do this. And then I got offered a forum at the York Theater. So I left it to go do that. And I was like, okay, I've done Forever now because I had done the New Jersey company I workshopped it and then ran it for almost a year so I was like I, I feel like I've I've found every moment that Sparky has in Forever Plaid. Yes and so how did your sort of friendship with association with Jerry Herman start and eventually lead to perfect harmony or show? Uh, well I met him when I was auditioning for Hello Dolly um the national tour with Carol Channing in 1983. I was doing Snoopy at the time in New York and uh, I auditioned and didn't get it. And then, then I auditioned for Lacage and I was down to the end for Jean-Michel and I didn't get that. So I was like, okay, you know, close, but no cigar. So then I didn't see him for a while. I was very busy, Charles. So I had no time for Jerry Herman. So I, uh, in 2000, Michael Kirker and ASCAP started a, a, a tour and I had done a Jerry Herman concert at UCLA and I'd seen Jerry there. I sang, let's go to the movies with KT Sullivan. And, um, and I met him there and, it was, and I think I'd sang a ballad as well. Can't remember what the ballad was. And um, anyway, so they had a tour called Hello Jerry that uh, Michael 
Kirker produced an ASCAP with Jerry and Jerry was in it with Don Pippen, his longtime musical director. And uh, it was uh, myself and Karen Morrow, Broadway legend, who I know you know well, yes. and Paige O'Hara, the voice of Belle in Beauty and the Beast. And so we traveled the country and I got to know Jerry really well. And I ended up doing a lot of shows with him. I, I got to do Mac and Mabel at Lincoln Center when we did it in concert at Lincoln Center. And he cast me in to do the West Coast revival of the Grand Tour out here. And uh, I was on his PBS special. I mean, I just, I went, you know, we hung out. We, I, he really became a, a, a great friend. I miss him every day of my life. Uh, I was so lucky to be in his world. Oh my God. I just, I loved him. I loved him and I love that he liked me. You know, he really trusted me. The first, like the, in the show, I sang You I Like, and um, I think they gave me that. And I was like, You I Like, that's like one of my favorite songs from the Grand Tour. Okay, I'll try to put together something with that. And then I made it really sticky and, and all that. And <laughs> after I did it a couple of times in the concert, Jerry came up to me and he said, okay, Jason, he didn't say, okay, he said, Jason, I, I just want to say, I love what you're doing with the song. I, 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 it's very funny. He said, I just have, I have one request, Jason, please sing one chorus of it the way I wrote it so that everybody knows how the song goes. Then you can do whatever the hell you want. <laughs> it said, note taken, note taken, which is a great note for any song, you know, you got to establish what the song is, sing the notes, introduce what the thing is, and then you can go to town. Yeah. Well, what I loved about him is that he gave you freedom. You know, he had specific ideas about his songs that he said, you know, you have to do at the end of it only takes a moment. You've got to take a breath on. It only took a moment, you know, little fine-tuning things that were he was very specific about which i loved i mean he gave he gave you the inside track about some of this material but you know he loved he loved that i got laughs with stuff and when i did decide i had all these stories working with him and all this great songs and i thought well i'll write his coattails and i'll do a show my jerry herman review on my own and so i i did my cabaret show and he just loved it because it was a it was a funny show and it was slightly irreverent about him and um he loved the laughs, you know, he's, he's got such a great sense of humor. And it's not like he wrote a bunch of like fall down laughy songs, yeah. you know, like Rogers and Hammerstein. It's not like he wrote like a bazillion hilarious songs. He was a brilliant wordsmith, but his words were deceptively simple and heartfelt and, uh, and really easy to memorize because they made sense. They just made sense, yeah. you know. And so, of course, you did a, I'm not sure if it was a show, but an album of Charles Strauss as well. And how did that sort of develop? Yes, uh, you're never fully dressed without a smile. Yeah, and uh, I did. I ended up doing it as a show, but uh, Bruce Kimmel um, produced it. He was producing all those albums back in the day. It was called the Spotlight Series uh, when he was working for Vares Saraband and Judy Kuhn and Liz Calloway and Randy Graff and uh, Sally Mays and so many great people. And so I was the first man that he produced a solo album for. Okay, Charles, I was the first man. It takes a real man to sing Charles Strauss. I think you know what I mean. 
So I got to do that and it was a ball. Brad Ellis from Glee did the musical direction and Larry Moore did the arrangements and God, it was a big orchestra. It was so fun. I loved it. Yeah. And so of course, another, another cabaret show you do is with Faith Prince. You're the prince on the show boy with her. And so what is your collaboration like with her? Cause I imagine it must be very close. <laughs> we are pretty, pretty close. She's coming over for dinner tonight, as a matter of fact. Oh. We're having a barbecue. She's in town for a little bit. So uh, I'm going to get to see her in just a few short hours. In just a few short hours. Um, thank you. Um, she's and I went to college together. And when we got to New York, I stayed at, I sublet her apartment when she went on the road. She and Kim Criswell were living together. So I sublet her place. And... Um, we did off-Broadway shows together. We did Olympus on My Mind. We did Living Color, also known as Texas Chainsaw Manicurist. Um, we did uh, I Love You, Jimmy Valentine. Um, so we, you know, we kept working together and I loved her. And then she moved into my building on West End and 84th. We lived in the same building, uh, 500 West End Avenue. And Ron Raines also lived in that building with Donna Vaughn. So, um, you know, we just kept crossing paths. Then we kind of lost track of each other a little bit. She won her Tony and I didn't, and we went separate ways. So then, um, then out in, I moved to LA and, you know, we'd run into each other from time to time. And then we did a benefit together, a Jerry Herman benefit in San Francisco for 42nd Street Moon. And um, it was another one of those moments where, uh, you know, it just like skyrockets went off. When we got together, we just... It was just love at return site. I don't know what you call it, but it was, it, we just couldn't get enough of each other. And we had such a great time and we sang some duets and we thought we got to do this more. We need to do this more because there's a lot going on here. And um, so we, we put together our show with Alex Rybeck and just did it everywhere. And oh my God, she just turned into one of my greatest, dearest friends in the world. And it just gets deeper and better as the years go by and she was the minister at um at my wedding with uh, oh. my husband glenn she was our minister with a name like faith you gotta be a minister yes <laughs> she was incredible she was absolutely incredible funny and heartfelt just like she is yeah and so you've of course done a lot of theater in LA, which we haven't even talked about yet, but what do you like about doing theater on the West Coast? Is it different at all or? Uh, well, there's a lot, yes, there is. There's so much theater here. So uh, there, you know, sometimes LA gets a bum rap um, because there's so much theater out here. So there's some, you know, it's a mixed, it can be a mixed bag, but there's, you know, there's brilliant actors out here, brilliant directors, brilliant writers, and there's some incredible stuff here. You know, I, I've gotten to do some fun work. I got to do See What I Want to See um, at a very small theater company with Leslie Margarita and uh, uh, Perry Ojeda. We did it. It was an incredible, incredible experience. And, you know, we made very little money for it. And Michael John came out and, um, you know, we got to work a, a little bit with him, which was great. But I've had some great experiences out here, you know. Um, it's not considered a theater town. So, you know, they've had the equity waiver and, you know, people look at theater as, you know, a stepping stone to do TV and film, which it is. But as a diehard actor of the theater, I also think 
theater should also be respected and one should be paid for what they do, you know? And if, you know, it's great if it is a stepping stone, but I'm a man who's in the moment. I'm very much in the moment. So if I'm doing something, I want to be, that is the most important thing in my life. And I don't want to use it as, this is going to be a calling card to get me into, you know, to be seen at HBO, you know? So I, I'm, I'm happy the way things turned out here that they're, you know, paying their actors now at a lot of these smaller theaters, but I, it was contentious out here for a while. There's, but there's really, um, there's, it's a great, great landscape out here and let's hope it comes back. You know, I, I don't really know what the state of affairs is out here, but, but I've, I've had some really wonderful experiences out here uh, in the theater and I've worked at the Hollywood bowl. I've gotten to do some, you know, really grand scale musicals at the Hollywood bowl, which is ridiculously fun and LA opera, and, um, you know, I did Ragtime at the Schubert Theater, and that was, that was um, you know, we ran for a year out here, and it was one of the great experiences of my life. What brought me out here was a theater. I came out here to do Forbidden Hollywood. Oh. And, uh, and just it was like it was like an in-house industrial you know doing that in LA because we were we were mocking Hollywood and everybody came to see it and boy from that it was a stepping stone I got a lot of TVs and a lot of sitcoms from that job we all did and the whole cast uh, Jerry McIntyre and Christine Petty and Suzanne Blakesley we all got a lot of work from that and so you know I love it yeah it's a great place and to live and I'd love to talk about one of the specific shows you did, if I can, which is uh, Six Dance Lessons and Six Weeks with mm. Constance Towers and what it was like to work with her and do that. And you know her, of course, right? Well, not personally, but of course I know of her, yes. Of course you know of her. Yeah. You're amazing. I want to interview you next time. This is more, you're way more interesting than I am. Okay, so I, yes, yeah, so we got to do it uh, with Richard, uh, Gary and uh, Arthur Seidelman directed it and Richard wrote it and uh, Arthur Seidelman directed it originally with Uta Hagen and David Hyde Pierce and then uh, then it opened on Broadway not with them and um, Uta got sick and uh, they had a different cast and it didn't run very long so then they wanted to bring it back to LA so they cast Constance and myself and we did it at Gary Marshall's theater um, and oh my god I just loved it she's just a dream I saw her in King and I back in the day and um, oh my god what a, one of the grand doms of the theater grand doms of the theater and uh, we just had a great time you know it's a, a very interesting play and we did it at Gary Marshall's theater which is an intimate space and it was a good place for that very intimate story to be told so we just had a ball. And while we were doing it, we both got cast in a TV movie. So we were doing that during the day and then doing six dance lessons at night. So we got very close. We were working very closely together. And we did the play version of Awakening of Spring. The play version of Spring Awakening called Awakening of Spring. And I played all the adults in it and she played somebody's mother. So yeah, I got to, I really got to know her well. Just, and she had so many stories of Richard Rogers because, you know, she was his leading lady for a while. She did a lot of the shows at City Center and of course, Mrs. Anna and uh, just great. And her husband, John Gavin, you know, from Thoroughly Modern Millie, he played Trevor Graydon, you know, all those things. He was around a lot and that, that was fun. That was fun. Yeah. yeah. And so to bring us up a little bit to the present day, one of the most recent things you did was touring in Wicked as the wizard mm. for a while. 
And so what was the experience of that like? Well, I got to tell you, it was, uh, it was really bad. No, I'm just kidding. It's <laughs> wicked. I loved every minute of it. Can you imagine? I hated making all that money being in a hit show. It was really hard for me. <laughs> what kind of jerk would I be? Um, I loved it. I loved being in that kind of a mega hit show. I loved playing the Wizard of Oz. I loved the excitement that the audience brought to the theater every single night felt like an opening night. And I felt like such a responsibility to, you know, bring my A game and to, you know, it was 24 minutes of stage time, I think, if that much that the wizard has. And I got nervous every night and excited. My heart pounded in my entrance. I mean, it was just, it was a great entrance, but uh, you know, it was, it was interesting. I having only done, I haven't been in a show like that, you know, that it's just like a mega hit. When we did Ragtime out here, it was before the Broadway show had opened. So oh. we had the Broadway cast was still trying it out in Toronto and it was not a proven hit yet. Then we opened at the Schubert before Broadway and it was a hit out here, but we were still finding our way. And it was, I loved it. I love Ragtime. I've ended friendships with people who do not like Ragtime. It's like, well, then you're not worth being my friend, so goodbye. Because I love it. it's one of the great pieces of all time. Stealing again, but Wicked, you know, is a proven commodity, and it's been going on and on and on and on. And so there I was being plugged in, um, and you know, I guess one of the challenges for me is that I I got very attached to the company that I opened with. You know, I watched these people on stage. I got very attached to the two witches, Jenna Claire Mason and uh, M.K. Morrissey, who was Alphaba. Oh, God. I still could cry when I say M.K.'s name. And um, I watched them as I learned the show. And then, you know, we all were together. And we all remained together for quite a few months, which I guess doesn't happen all the time. I, having not been part of those kind of mega hits, you know, people come and go. People, are, people leave. They come back, they go, they bring in new people. And so it's ever changing. And I think that's one of the great things about these shows because it keeps it fresh, it keeps it alive for everybody. But it was very difficult for me to say goodbye to people because I got so attached. And especially on my Madame Morrible, Jodi Gelb, um, she, we got to do it together for a long time and she was sublime. And when she left, a piece of my soul left as did when MK and Jenna Claire left, you know, and their contracts were up and they had to move on and new people came in. And, you know, and I've been that guy on the other end, you know, I've been the person in the show and somebody's left and the replacement comes in and I'm always very respectful. And, you know, I know what it's like. It's challenging to come in to a company that's been together, but for a show like Wicked that everybody came in like that. Everybody was the new guy at one point. So it's ever morphing, ever changing. And, um, but that was, that was hard for me sometimes. You just get used to seeing the same faces. And um, so that, that was emotional. And when I left, um, I, I, I did it for a year and a half and um, I actually left to go do another show. So I was going to stay even a little longer, but then I, I got another job. So I thought, well, I should, now's a good time to leave. And um, I, you know, I, it was an event. It was just an event. Touring's a trip. I've never toured for a year and a half. And uh, one of the great parts was we came out to LA. Am I just talking too much? Am I oh, just like, no, no. Karen Morrow, I know talked as much as I did, but her <laughs> stories have got to be better. Karen Morrow's is 
Did she do that a lot? I love her so much. I just saw her last week at a party. Um, anyway, we got to do the Pantages out here for uh, nine weeks. So that was as like good as it gets. Pantages is about two miles from my house in Hollywood. So I getting to do that was like, I think I'm as happy as I could ever possibly be. And I'm living at home and, you know, it was great. But I loved it. And so what were you doing right before quarantine or right when it happened? Oh, my God. Well, the last things I did... I hate to say this, one of my last performances, um, I, I was asked to sing at Jerry Herman's memorial. And so uh, it was quite a quite a day. Were you there? I, I wasn't there, although oh, although I wish that I had been, because I'm sure it was. God, Charles, I thought you got like all the invitations to everything. <laughs> very fancy. Well, it was, uh, by the way, you're such a good interviewer. Oh, thank you. Hats off to you. Um, yeah, it was... Uh, that was a great day. I laughed, I cried, and uh, and I did you I like. I was like sticky, 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 and I did. I thought it was this is a horrible idea, but they requested me to sing it. I said, "Really? Like you want me to do the sticky song at Jerry's memorial? Don't you want me to sing something sweet?" And they said, "No, there's going to be a lot of that, and we're going to need a little levity." And so they made me feel good. Jerry's partner and other people that were producing it said, "No, we'll need some levity and." feel good about singing that song. Okay. All right. If you say so. So I, I was sticky, but it was, it was an incredible um, experience. And I just, I sat in the wings. I was laughing. I was screaming for everybody. I was crying nonstop because I miss him every day. And uh, yeah, it was great. So that was one of my last things. And then uh, I did, it should have been you out here with my theater company. We did it in concert and Josh Grissetti directed it. It was really fun. And so we did that. And that was kind of like my last show. And um, then the quarantine hit. Yeah. And how do you think that theater will come back? And what would you like to be doing when it does? Well, I really think Walter Bobby should remember how much fun we had during a grand <laughs> first singing. He cast me as Amos in, oh. in Chicago. He's always nervous that I'm going to be too like lively and sticky. But um, and maybe he's right. I know Walter's smart, but, you know, I'm an actor. So I think that I can be really boring if he wants me to be. So I'd like to do Amos in Chicago. And uh, plus he just stands there, which sounds great to me. So I kind of turned into a real slob during Wicked. So, um, <laughs> but um, I'm going to be doing a forever plaid reunion with our original company. We're going to do three concerts of it in Long Beach, which will be fun in July or July and August. And I'm going to do a show. And this is the way I think it's coming back out here. It's moving slowly. It's weird, Charles, because everybody says we're back. Yeah. We're back. Are you feeling this? It's like, yay, we're back, but we're not. Yeah. I'm still doing virtual hosting, singing, freebie vocal things on my phone, doing singing with my, the piano in my ear. You know, it's like, ugh. I don't want to do that anymore. I want to sing for people and like be out there in front of people. I know it's starting to happen slowly, but it's moving slower out here, which is odd because we're doing great out here right now as far as the stuff. But I'm going to do a two-person show about Rosemary Clooney called Tenderly. And um, it's about when Rosemary Clooney had a nervous breakdown and went into the hospital. Sounds like a real comedy, doesn't it? 
So, and I'm doing it with Linda Pearl and we're doing it at the Santa Barbara, and she's fantastic. And we're doing it at the Santa Barbara Ensemble Theater. So it's just a two person show. And I think, you know, that's a great way to start it, you know, to go back in doing smaller things like that makes me feel good. But, you know, Wicked's tours starting rehearsals soon and they're going to be back out and people are cramming into theaters. And I don't know that I'm ready to cram into a theater quite yet. I went into the grocery store today Vons and I wore my mask and they told me I didn't have to. And I said, that's okay. I'm happy to. And so I'd love to ask you one last question, which is after such a great career and during such a great career, what is a piece of advice that you would give to somebody just starting out? Gosh, just one piece of advice. Put down your cell phone. Put down your cell phone and be present in the moment. That's what I would say. Um, you know what? It's such a great business and um, gosh, study, read, go see everything, sing anywhere you, you get a chance to, act anywhere you get a chance to, and ask questions of the people that you're working with because they're not going to be around forever. And, you know, I was talking to Judy Blazer we Marco Polo, she's in London now. Well, she's not, she's in, in four hours out of London, but we were, we talk a lot on Marco Polo and she was, we were talking about Billy Porter and um, we both worked with Billy a lot. And she said, you know, I remember working with Billy Porter when he was a teenager, probably your age at Pittsburgh Civic Light Opera. And I think, I don't know, she was doing Eliza and My Fair Lady or something. And Billy was, you know, one of the kids in the ensemble. And she said, I remember him so well. He was sitting in the corner quietly and you could just see him absorbing everything. He was watching everybody intently and taking it all in. And that curiosity, that curiosity cannot be beat. You've got it, you've got curiosity, you know, you listen. I think now the curiosity is, um, is on the downside, right? It's like on the downswing right now because people are so busy pushing their own Instagram pictures and want their own popularity and all that stuff. But to be curious, to ask questions. And, you know, I was just always like sitting there with my mouth hanging open watching Jack Guilford perform and asking him questions and, you know, watching DJ Jamin Bartlett and wanting to hear stories about when she was in a little night music. And, you know, it's just, there's nothing like tan experience and, you know, working with pros. Pros love telling stories. You can tell by the people you've talked to. We love yeah. talking. I love sharing, sharing my stories. You know, there's a lot of stories. We could hear, sit here for 24 hours talking about it all, but. We wouldn't do that to your listeners. Well, thank you so much for doing this. This has been just wonderful. I loved it. And you're listeners, great. Thank you for tuning in. And remember to come back next time when I am joined by the amazing Steven Brinberg. As the premier Barbara Streisand impersonator, he has toured with his show Simply Barbara across the globe and has performed at the Kennedy Center Avery Fisher Hall and with the symphony orchestras of Dallas, Milwaukee, Buffalo, and Norfolk. He performed at Sondheim's birthday concert at Carnegie Hall with Uptown Express and on Broadway in the concert of Funny Girl 
Carroll with Whoopi Goldberg. His film credits include Camp, Boy's Life, and Next Year in Jerusalem. And his TV appearances include such shows as Rosie O'Donnell, Sally Jesse Raphael, Jerry Springer, and more. Out of drag, he appeared in Ken Page's Nightlife at MTC and Ivanov at the Jewish Rep. So I hope you'll enjoy that episode, and thanks for listening.